pick up Luke 4 and get some instruction here in, in uh, resisting. Luke 4, verse 1, it says, Jesus being full of the Holy Ghost returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into wilderness, being tempted 40 days of the devil. There's some very interesting things here. First of all, it says Jesus was filled with the Spirit. Secondly, it said that he was led by the Spirit and he was led purposely in the wilderness for one thing. And that was what? To be tempted of the devil. And I'm moving into the second controversial thing that I say. I said there were two things in this section, and it's the most controversial. I mean, if people in the work here, everything I say is controversial. But if you're in the work here, there's these two things. One is that all temptation comes from the enemy, and that we're to resist the tempter. And this one. And verse 3, it says, The devil said to him, Verse 4 said, Jesus answered him. And then verse 6 says, The devil said to him, Verse 8, Jesus answered him. The middle of verse 9, it says, The devil said to him, and in the verse 12, Jesus answered him. Now, did, did, the, um, did the Lord hear what Satan said? Yes. How do we know he heard? By he, the way he answered. Uh, one time I was dealing with a professional Christian and um, it's really overwhelmed with spirits. And uh, I quoted some scripture to this spirit. This is really one of those bad cases. I haven't had a lot of bad cases, but when they're bad, they're really bad. And this person was totally taken over. I mean, just everything was taken over by the enemy. And I quoted this scripture, and I quoted it wrong, and I knew it. And a voice, the, the fellow's body was taken over, and he got in this really relaxed, and kicked his feet out, crossed them over, folded his arms, and I said, I command you to leave him. And he said, I'm not going anywhere. I wasn't telling the fellow to leave the room. I was talking about what was bothering this guy to leave. He said, I'm not going anywhere. I said, why? He said, you quoted it wrong. <laughs> I knew I quoted it wrong. But you know what I didn't know at that time? That Jesus used Ramos, not Logos. And the enemy knew I didn't know it. See, Ramos is truth of Scripture. Logos is what we've been reading word for word. Rhema is the application of the Logos to my life. You know, God said this to David, I'll cover you with my wings. But how many of us like that? Do you notice my tie with the eagles on it? Some little kids that are here gave this to me. The, the eagle tie. Because I love, i got eagles in my office. And there's something about mounting up with the wings of eagles. I don't know, I just think it's, somehow it gives me a real wonderful feeling of my Lord and flying, you know, getting off this earth and flying on a higher level, you know, with him and in, in, in the higher places and so on. Um, but the, the Lord did not quote scripture word perfect. You just, I don't care what translation you have, get a commentary, you check it out. 
whatever whatever one you have, whether New American or NIV or whatever you're using, you'll find he did not quote the Old Testament perfectly. He quoted the truth of the Old Testament. Isn't that encouraging? Because we don't maybe know the words word for word. Well, if I have to quote it word for word, then is it New American, NIV, or the King James? What do I quote? It's like, if you haven't seen the snake story, and you don't know what the snake story is, you ought to get that snake story. Because we had Otto Koenig speak at our conference. We have a conference for counselors every two years. And we have 600 counselors that come from all over the United States and other parts of the world to be trained in counseling. So we had Otto Koenig speaking. And where he meets the demons for the first time in the jungles of Irian Jaya. And here the demons are screaming at him. And he goes, resist the devil, resist the devil. And then he's going, but what language? English, Dutch, whatever. I was dealing with a fellow and the demons were speaking um, Arabic. And I just said, if you want to talk to me, speak in English. So they switched to English. I don't understand Arabic. I mean, if the demons want to talk to me, I don't want to talk to demons. But I mean, you know, they're going to talk to me, then don't give me this Arabic stuff. I don't understand it. Just come out in English. Well, anyway, so Jesus used Ramus. Hey, just use the truth of Scripture. The truth will set you what? Free. Use truth. You say, I can't do that. My body belongs to God. I don't know that verse. I don't know the reference, but I know it's in there. <laughs> Somewhere it's in there. It's all I need to know. It's what Jesus used against the enemy. Now, here's the second thing I need to ask you. Did the devil tell Jesus to do right or wrong? Anybody here? Was it right or wrong? It was wrong. Now, when I say this, think about it before you react. Then Jesus had wrong thoughts. Yes, he did. If Jesus did not have wrong thoughts, you and I are in trouble. Because it said he is tempted in all points like we, yet without sin. And every single temptation is registered consciously in my mind. Jesus heard what the devil said. What the devil told him to do was what? Wrong. And see, you and I have come to the conclusion that to be tempted is a sin. That's what the devil. To be tempted is not a sin. The temptation is, what do I do with those wrong thoughts? What do I do with those intruding thoughts? Whether the devil stands in front of you and talks to you like he did to Jesus, or he puts intruding thoughts like we talked about when we first started, the devil puts wrong thoughts in my mind, and to hear those wrong thoughts is not the same as doing them, and I don't have to feel guilty about them, and Jesus didn't. See, there's a difference between thought and thinking. Remember, we talked about this in the first day. Yesterday, it seems we've been here forever. <laughs> What's the difference? Jesus never let those thoughts become part of his what? Thinking. He didn't grab a hold of them. He didn't make plans to carry them out. He just said, wait a minute, I'm not going to do this. And he quoted scripture back. So it was a battle that took place and it never became a part of him. It was just took registered in his mind. And we have to realize that. You think it through and you're going to see that he was tempted not points like we. And yet without sin. That's why we can come boldly to the throne of grace to find help and to find what? Grace in the time of need. What's grace? The empowering of God. When you and I find ourselves and our mind coming under attack of the enemy, we can go to him and get grace to resist. And I don't care what the enemy is going to bring in your life tomorrow or tonight. I can tell you this. There is more grace. There is more empowering. And you can resist. You do not have to choose to give in. 
Now, after Jesus dealt with, and something teaches here, one verse may not do you. Right? Why does Paul call it wrestling, or it's translated struggling with spirits? Because it's a real battle. And Jesus, one verse, didn't, the enemy just didn't flee when Jesus gave him one verse. He came back and put other thoughts in his mind by talking to him. And Jesus heard him. And Jesus used scripture again, and he came back with more thoughts, and Jesus resisted him again. Then he left. But not until three verses. Now, this is significant, and you must catch this. There's a lot of counselors here, and you've got to share this with your counselees. The next verse, 13, is a significant verse. And when the devil ended all his temptation, he departed from Jesus, or from him, for a season, if you have a King James. And season just doesn't do it. You know, there's seasons. We are now moving into the fall season. That's not what he's talking about. You look it up in the Greek, and the it's been translated by other translations more accurately. He departed from Jesus until an opportune time. And I want to tell you something, friend. Satan's opportune time is your worst. When you're most vulnerable to his attacks and temptations, it's when he'll come. And you know what I found? We have a whole bunch of counselors here from an excellent ministry, Scope Ministries in Oklahoma City. And we recommend anybody in Oklahoma to go there when they call, because we can't see everybody. There's no way. And Scope has been around for a long time. And, and one of their fellows, I think he's kind of retired now, Julian Sleeper, that's with Scope. He and I were vice president at CEF together. And Julian is a prince of a prince. Just a wonderful, wonderful man. And uh, this is a wonderful ministry. It's biblical-centered, and they deal with the enemy, and they understand. Someone asked, is there any, any uh, organization down here in Dallas? And the one I'd like to recommend, if you're in the Dallas area, would be Exchange Life Ministries with John and Carolyn Best. John Best, I believe, was a Greek teacher at Dallas Theological Seminary. Do we have some anybody that went to Dallas or somebody who knows Dallas? Was John Best a Greek teacher there or something at Dallas Theological Seminary? He did something there. He was a professor there. But he has a counseling ministry now. And Carolyn, Carolyn Best, and this is just from me, I feel is probably, I feel more comfortable with her dealing with the ritually abused and satanic rituals of anybody in America. Those that have the, what has been put on them is MPD. I think Carolyn Best probably has the most balanced approach to that whole thing. And so if you know someone that's gone through this terrible thing of being abused ritually in satanic rituals, we had a little girl, four years of age, that tried to commit suicide. She tied a rope around her neck with knots she couldn't know how to tie, and had the rope been shorter, she'd be dead. And that little girl was ritually abused in satanic rituals. And she, she sends spirits away now if they come in her bedroom. She is just so, she's now six, and she is so just just a real warrior and she made a little angel for me uh, I got it about three years ago you know and it's got glue and glitter on it and a little halo and 
got a roll, toilet paper roll or something, and this angel sits on the top of the wings, and she said, Dear Jim, something to watch over you. Love, Nicole. <laughs> this little old paper angel sat on my desk, and people come in and look at this old battered paper angel. I said, Well, let me tell you the story of the little girl and how God is healing this little girl. You know what she does? She draws pictures of what those bad people did to her. You wouldn't want to see those pictures. Very graphic pictures of terrible sexual acts that were done to her and cruel things. And then she takes that picture and she forgives the people that did those bad things. She asks God to save them and she tears the picture up and throws it in the garbage. And that's how she's dealing with the things that were done to her. She's throwing them away, putting them away. And this little girl is coming to healing. And her two-and-a-half-year-old brother was being attacked by demons. Just two-and-a-half-year-old. And he kept telling his mother, Bad Daddy came in the room. Bad Daddy came in the room. And so the mom said, What is going on here, Jim? I mean, they just, you know, here we got our daughter. And what's going to happen? And I said, Well, you know, your, your Nicole's grandfather was involved in satanic rituals. He's the one that... that uh, abused this little girl and exposed her to all kinds of horrible things. I said, has uh, the boy ever seen his grandfather? She said, no, never has seen him. I said, why don't you do this? She said, well, is my husband doing something? I said, no, come on, you're just pushing the panic button here. Your husband got saved and he's doing well. It's not him. I said, I want you to take pictures of men. And if you have any pictures left of the grandfather, since he, you were pregnant with this boy, so he's never seen his grandfather. Mix him up in the pictures, lay the pictures out on the table, and let your two-and-a-half-year-old son point out who's bad daddy. So they took these pictures, and they laid them out, and one of the pictures was mine. I'm going, no, no, no. <laughs> I didn't mean to put mine in there. <laughs> Just seeing there's bad daddy. <laughs> Guess what picture he pointed to? His grandfather he'd never seen. And then he said, take me, Jim Logan. I need help. Little two-and-a-half-year-old boy. Tell you, the grandfather has tremendous powers in attacking this little guy, and it's hard for a two-and-a-half-year-old boy to stand against that kind of stuff. But they were coming in his room, and he would see them and tell them they were there. They were there. Because Nicole said the same thing. Grandpa was here last night. He said, it can't be. He was. He was. He's in my room. And then they taught her how to resist. And she would resist in the name of Jesus, and they would go, and they don't come back anymore. Never come back. What's the point? Just going to send them away anyway. So they don't bother her anymore. But they started on her little brother. <clears throat> but we found that when I have a bad day at the office, and we do have bad days in counseling, um, guess who had a bad day at the house? We don't have a dog. This is my wife. <laughs> you ever notice that? You know, I come home, I'm not fit for human consumption. <laughs> and neither is my wife. That makes for an interesting evening. But I'm really always, I say, oh, Lord, help me. You know, if the enemy ever setting us up to get involved in a discussion, <laughs> it's now. When I've had a terrible day, I'm really tired, and, I, and, I, and things didn't go well, and she didn't have a good day either. I wish we'd arrange different days. You can have a bad day Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. I might be Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays. But have you ever noticed that? How that, you know, I'm, we're set up for it, aren't we? And it's just like anything we say, all of a sudden there it goes. And then pride comes in. Oh, I'm the head of this house. See? Got a crown. You know, that kind of stuff. And it's just, you know, it's horrible. Um... I don't do that, but 
I know guys that do that. They tell her how, when a guy has to tell his wife and kids he's head of the house, he's not. Now, when we were at CEF together, I didn't walk around the house saying, you know, I'm vice president in here. <laughs> Neither did Julian. And the president walked around saying, I'm president of this mess. <laughs> oh. We just were. Do you know what I'm saying? We just were. That's all. When you know who you are and you know what you're to do, you don't have to go around telling people who you are. You just are. Do you know what I'm saying? Good. Okay. Then the next verse is verse 14. And remember, Satan, we're going to pick this departing for a little while to an opportune time, hooks up with another verse in Ephesians 6. And then it said, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. Now here we have Jesus filled by the Spirit. He was led by the Spirit. He met the enemy. The enemy talked to him. He resisted him. Eventually the enemy left. The enemy said he was going to come back again. Until, I mean, the Scripture said he'd be back in an opportune time. We don't know how many times Satan came back because it said if everything that happened in Jesus' life was written down, John said the book would be too big to read. So I don't know how often he showed up. But we do know this, that the whole experience was empowering. And that's exciting. When you and I come into the attack of the enemy, it can be one of the most exciting, empowering experiences of our Christian life as we resist the enemy and the enemy goes instead of us. I can't tell you the wonderful letters we get back from people that are experiencing whole new spiritual power in their life and are excited. For the first time, they're able to say no and to see this thing lift off them. I'm sharing about the medical doctor. They had their rational fears. And he slid off the bed, got on his knees, and resisted the enemy, and immediately the whole thing stopped. And he was paralyzed with fears. And from that time on, he's been free. But God said, you need to resist. You need to learn how to resist. Okay. Now, how do we get rid of pride? This is the most devastating of all sins. How do we get rid of pride? I've got bad news. We can't. Because pride is building life around what? Self. Well, you could try razor blades or pills or a pistol or a noose. It's the only way you're going to get rid of self. You know, uh, you remember when everybody's trying to find themselves? Do you remember that? When it was going on, it was sickening. And uh, so this person was telling me, they're saying, Oh, Jim, I'm just trying to find myself. They were in public eye. I'm just trying to find myself. I was getting really sick of this. And one day she said, you know, I'm just trying to find myself. I said, when you do, crucify it. <laughs> Luke 9.23 is God's answer to pride. Jesus knew the answer. He said, if unto all of them if any person will come after me, let him what? Deny self and take up his cross daily and follow me. In 1 Corinthians, it's either 15 or 16, Paul said, I die daily. Galatians 2.20, I am what? Crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. He's talking here about the crucified life. He's talking about the willingness for you and I to set aside our will for God's will. 
and to do it often? Every day. Lord, I need you today. Lord, I don't want to do my thing today because that's pride. I want to do your thing. I'm going to put it in your words. I, I encourage our counselees to put this verse up, Luke 9.23, up somewhere where they see it so it becomes just an automatic part of breathing. This is, I don't know, uh, maybe some of you went to Grisbane, uh, Grand Rapids School, the Grand Rapids School of Bible and Music. There was an old godly man that taught there, and uh, he was uh, Dutch, and of course I think everybody in Grand Rapids is Dutch. Uh, if not, you must have just moved there recently. The, um, and he would get up in front of the class, this, this old godly man, the Dutchman, and he'd say, What is the day? This is the day the Lord hath made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. And he said it every day, every day, every class he ever taught in that school. And the kids would get resentful of it. <laughs> Funny, isn't he? But he was trying to tell him something. You can make a choice. This is the day the Lord has made. Will you choose to be glad in it and rejoice? Or be a grump? And this is Luke 9.23. Will you do this? You say, Lord, I want to die to myself today. I want to be alive to you. I want to focus on you. Someone asked me this, and it's a good question. They said, do you think that, uh, that it could be the enemy that would that would tempt you not to have devotions in the morning? And I said, absolutely. What better way of setting the day? What better way of messing up the day? Just you're too busy, you're too tired, you're too whatever. To just get that focus. And Lord, I want to give this day to you. Give me a rhema today that I can hold on to. Give me a truth from your word. Speak to my heart. That's the rhema is speaking to my heart. I want to go with it today. I want to hang on to that today. I mean, it's amazing. God will often give us rhemas before we need them and they don't make sense. You had rhemas that don't make sense? Well, I've had rhemas that don't make sense. Every time we made a major move, I asked God for a rhema. I got a real, really unusual rhema. They that regard the wind will never sow, and they that regard the clouds will never reap. Isn't that a good verse? I'm going, God, you made a mistake. I don't even understand that. I didn't understand it. And I had that verse, I couldn't understand it. I said, why is God calling me to go to a Bible college? And that is the rhema. He was like, it's speaking to my heart, but I can't understand the language. You know what it's saying? We're going to that Bible college to see if we could develop the character of the students and could a Bible college develop students with Christian character? Would that be possible? I mean, you know, that all the kids, that'd be the focus of the school, not to give the kids intellectual stuff and send them out with a lot of wise stuff, but could we send them out with changed lives? Could we do it? Would it be possible that a Bible school could pull that off? And what he was saying is, Logan, if you look at circumstances, it'll never happen. There'll be faculty that oppose you. This is an academic. I don't know what Dallas is like now, but one year I was teaching Dallas Seminary. He had 22 divorces that year amongst the uh, students. Well, the kind of students that they're trying to, in the churches they're trying to fill, you usually don't want divorce students. Something's going on. Are they teaching the right stuff at Dallas Theological Seminary? Aren't they? I mean, aren't they getting a lot of heavy-duty theological stuff? The guys can jot and tittle real well? 
They're hardly living. God's more concerned not how these guys shot and tittled. Because are they walking in victory? Or a bunch of defeated kids that are brainy? Aren't you glad we're not going to take a spiritual IQ to get into heaven? I'm not against learning, you know that. I, but you know, we can make the wrong thing. Academia is not to be our goal. Christ. He wants to conform me into the image of Christ. And that can happen in Bible school. That can happen anywhere. But we ought to create an atmosphere in our home or church or somewhere where that can happen. That's what God wants, that we become like His Son. And so we need to be what? Instead of being creature-centered, because Satan desired to be like God in control, not character. God wants me to desire to be like him in character. Satan wants me to be creature-centered. God wants me to be Christ-centered. I have to make a choice. Do I really want Christ to center my life? Do I want to build my life around the Lord Jesus Christ? Am I willing to look to him? So that's how we deal with pride. A very daily thing. Now we have one more area that we take people through that they must deal with before we deal with the enemy. We haven't dealt with the enemy yet. We're taking background. Taking background. The last area to take background is Romans 6. And I want to teach you Romans 6 negatively before we look at it positively. In my counseling, it's unique. I counsel at least 90% or more are men. I see very few women. I see mostly men. And about 90% of the men that I see are in bondage to some form of lust. With anger and all that other stuff that goes with it. And so, for some reason, God has called me to minister to men. I mean, it's just it's happening. I don't say men answer the, you know, call me, uh, whatever. We, uh, I mentioned with you, we get around 6,000 phone calls a year asking for help. And uh, we're calling back in the morning, so I start early. I start calling at 5 o'clock in the morning, and I start calling the East Coast and work across the United States and then hit Hawaii or Alaska, because they're four hours different. I get them up. And you can tell them, yeah, you know what time it is? Like, Three o'clock in the morning. I said, well, you know what they found out here? So they found out that a survey in the two hospitals here in Sioux City, that the majority of people that die in these hospitals are dying in bed, and they're standing them up now, and maybe I just saved your life. <laughs> <laughs> you got to have some answer, right? They're getting somebody up at 3 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> And so Romans 6 has been a, a real, real uh, help to guys. So if you know anybody in sexual bondages, and I tell guys, if you embarrass me, I'll let you know. If you, if you, uh, you know, um, startle me, or whatever, it's not the word I'm trying to think of, whatever, you know, I'll let you know. I don't think there's anything that man can do that, that we haven't tried to help somebody or see people get on the other side of in this whole area. And so we go to Romans 6. And we start reading here, and I'm going to show you a progression, because we go over Romans 6 every week, every week, every week. All of a sudden, it clicked to me. I was going, wait a minute, I've missed something phenomenal here in Romans 6. Why didn't I see it? 
And then as Romans 6, we'll start in verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Okay. The idea, first I ask fellows, what is the picture of reigning? When you think of reigning, what do you see? And I always see, in my mind, a king. A king reigns, or a queen reigns. And I ask them, I say, well, what do you associate with a reign? And basically, I associate with someone in authority like that, a throne. And he's saying this, don't let sin set on the throne of your life because what it's going to do it's going to send out strong desires and those desires we call what? Lust. That's how lust is strong desire. It says the spirit lust against the flesh the flesh lust against the spirit in Galatians 5. So you have um, this lusting and we want to look at it in the area of violating God's moral laws. So we're going to use this basically in the area of, of moral failure. And so here is sin. I allow sin to sit on the throne and it's sending out these impulses and it wants me to obey it. The next verse tells me how I will obey it. Verse 13. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin. So he's telling me don't choose to yield your body to carry out those desires that are coming from that throne. Don't do it. Now, if I choose to yield my body to carry out the desires of lust coming from sin, sitting on the throne of my life, what's going to happen is verse 14, because he said, don't do this because sin shall not have dominion over you. But guess what happens if I choose to carry my body to do this? What's going to start dominating my life? I'll have a life-dominating sin. And if that sin begins to dominate my life enough, Proverbs 5.22 says his own iniquity takes the wicked and he's held with the cords of his sin. That's a picture of what? Bondage. It's a picture of bondage. He's held with the cords of his sin. And so as I begin to yield my body to these desires coming from the throne, I'm lying sin to sit there. More and more and more as I yield, I'm getting deeper and deeper and deeper into bondage. Now, he's going to go even deeper. Verse 16 says, Know ye not to whom ye yield yourself, and the word there should be slave. Yield yourself, slave to obey, his slaves you are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death. Can you see the progression in Romans 6? Where it was once a choice, now I'm what? A slave to it. And you know what causes boys and men, and we have some women, but not a lot of women that are slaves to... to to this whole thing. But you know what is the, the slave part of all of this? Eroticism, which is demonic. Eroticism kicks in. And all of a sudden, this person is in serious trouble. They're no longer choosing. It's not a choice anymore. It's just a bondage. They're in a horrible bondage. 
and you should see the pathetic letters we get and so on well, missionaries arrested on the mission field wearing their wife's clothes walking the streets and I can't tell you the stuff that we're dealing with terrible stuff sad tragic things guys are doing unbelievable things one fellow that we counsel with is going to be on Ronald Reagan's um, board what do you call it the guys that talk to him in the office the old office what do they call him as cabinet he used to be a, a man to his cabinet guy he was arrested in Washington D.C. a year later went back same place arrested a second time does that make sense to you and obviously you be a cabinet member you're not necessarily ignorant and this guy has you know, a doctorate degree why would he go back to the same place why would people do what they do I mean, if you don't understand the enemy and eroticism, you'll never be able to help somebody that's got a sexual addiction. That's all part of it. It's demonic with all this pleasure. And it just, the pleasure blows their mind. They just do things that just don't make sense. Take all kinds of horrible chances. Now, it gets worse. As he goes deeper with this thing. And that's verse 19. He said, I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded the members of your body to uncleanness and to iniquity and to iniquity. What in the world is he saying there? He says you become a slave to sin now. You become a slave to this evil. And he said, you're going from iniquity into further iniquity. And let me give you an illustration of this. I didn't understand it when a man told me this. A man came in my office one time and sat down. And he said, Logan, help me. My perversion is perverted. I didn't know what he meant. I mean, I just never heard that before. And it just, just left me cold. He's saying this verse. What he's saying is, Mr. Logan, do you realize that I've drawn lines? And everything up to that line is okay. Not, I mean, not as far as God goes, just to my own morality. I drew a line. And guess what Satan has me do? Step over the line. What do I have to do? I've got to draw another one. So everything now is okay. Evil. Everything up here is okay. What does Satan make me do? Step over the line. And then I draw another line. And guess what? Finally, I can't draw any more lines. Because what I'm doing, I can't even stomach myself. So either I've got to come out of the closet, whatever it is, and go public with what, what my thing is. Leave my wife, leave my kids, go public in this thing. Or take my life. I can't stand what's happening in my life. It's just too awful. And that's what the enemy does. Because what used to satisfy doesn't. And you have to go deeper and deeper and deeper. And all the counselors sitting there are shaking their heads going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, aren't you? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They dealt with these people. They go deeper and deeper and deeper until they can't stand it anymore. And then they got the Holy Spirit saying, this is wrong. This is wrong. This is wrong. But I can't stop it. And you know what's amazing? I've never dealt with anyone in a sexual addiction, regardless of what it was, that it did not start at about five years of age or younger. We have people calling whose children, two and three years old, are excessive masturbators. They can't get them to stop. They don't know what to do. They slap their hands. They tell them no. 
They keep doing it continually, all the time. It's strange sexual addictions to little kids. I've never had a man, as we go and I take you the steps, it'll be how we lead him to freedom in moral areas, that doesn't go back and can't remember violating God's moral conscience when he was five years old and becoming very, very sexual before he was sexual. Not even hardly knowing what was all going on, but just having all this strange stuff going on in his life. And that's why the world says bad genes. But they don't understand the iniquities of a father that are passed on to three and four generations. And that's where iniquities kick, kick in. The iniquities of, of a dad. We need to put that all together here. Maybe we ought to just throw iniquities in and go through the positive. What is the iniquity? I went through the Bible and I've marked every verse with iniquities in it. I did word studies on it, tried to study verses to try to understand what is this thing of iniquity. There's over a hundred and some times in the scripture talks about iniquities. They're iniquities. Over five times in the Old Testament, or at least five times, it says that the iniquities of the father are visited on their children to three and four generations. Not sin, but iniquities. Sometimes you'll find iniquity can be translated lawlessness. Sometimes you'll find that iniquity in itself can be uh, a substitute for sin. And it's hard to tell. Does it mean sin or iniquities here, if you, if you read it? But then there are verses that you know that God is trying to make a difference. He says, there's sins and what? Iniquities will I remember no more. He's not saying there's sins and sins. He's making a difference there. So you'll see those. You're saying, wait a minute. He's trying to differ something from sin. Because it doesn't say the sins of the fathers. It says the iniquities of the fathers. And he's talking about fathers. Then you go into the New Testament and you read something that Jesus said that really gives a key to all this. Jesus said this. He said, You've healed in my name. You cast out demons in my name. You preached in my name. Depart from me, you workers of what? Iniquity. What is he saying there? That's a real key to what is iniquity. Because surely healing and all of that in Jesus' name is not sin. And I called a Hebrew professor and I said please do a study on these passages and on this word I'll call you back in three days this is so vital I don't want to teach anything that could be shut down by another Hebrew professor <laughs> and I, I don't want to share something if I don't have an understanding it's really true now there may be differences on it but at least it's true biblically accurate and so he looked at it for three days I called him back and he's the type of guy that when he puts food on the bottom shelf you know, the cookies on the bottom shelf, I have to get a stepladder. He's so smart. And so he's saying, well, when so-and-so's book and such-and-such a page, blah, 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 and this and this and this, and I'm going, oh, wow, I'm overwhelmed with this stuff. I mean, I say, hey, wait a minute. How can we put it in plain Logan? You know what I mean? I said, I'm out there talking to real people. How in the world do we put it to him where real people can get a hold of this and understand what in the world is time? I said, that, that's so up here. I said, if I say this word, now you tell me, am I right on or am I wrong? Would iniquity be self-willedness? He said, that's it. He said, if you want to put down to just an everyday language, it's self-willedness in an area of life. God is saying, if there's a dad who chooses to hold an area of his life, self-willed, doesn't want God's will there, that he will decide in this area of his life, he's opening up his family to be tempted in that various area. 
and we are seeing it, we are documenting this. Most every guy in a sexual addiction when he goes home and shares what's going on is shocked of what his kids were going through. Remember the fellow I told you tried to commit suicide? His wife and every one of his kids thought about seriously killing themselves. He had no idea. Having all kinds of strange problems. We get these testimonies, they're excellent testimonies of these people. And that fellow happens to have a beyond a, a BA degree. And most of our testimonies are people that are, you know, credible lawyers, doctors, so on, missionaries, pastors. They're credible people. They're not street people. I don't see street people. They can't afford to come to Sioux City. I mean, we don't charge, but you've got to get there. So street people won't get on a plane and fly to Sioux City for help. And they're going back and they're seeing when they open themselves up to the enemy, how the enemy was coming to the dad to attack the kids. And we, we check that all the time. We can't get a kid free. I want to talk to the dad. There's something wrong here. And often the dad is in bondage and never said anything. And we're finding counselor after counselor saying, wait a minute, dad, can I ask you some questions? Before I deal with your son or daughter, what is going on in your life and your secret life? Is there anything that you're hiding? Is there something here we need to know? Do you need to deal with stuff in your life before we deal with your, your son or daughter? Now, son and daughter can be in rebellion in that, but so often there's something in dad's life that's just amazing. So this is the iniquity. This is that, 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 that area of weakness coming in, in, in a child's life. And what we do here in the negative, right now we stop. And with the counselee, I said, let's do this. Are you willing and would you be willing to pray right now and to ask God to take you back to the very first time in your life where you violated God's moral laws and let God show you. And if it's before salvation, we know that it's not a sin issue anymore, but it's a ground issue. And if there's things after salvation, there may be something you want to tell the Lord and confess it and take back the ground. But let's walk through your moral life. And they always go back to four or five years old to where they know what they did was wrong. They violated God's moral law. And God began to take them to, I will not and refuse to listen to simple details of what they did. Ephesians says it's a shame to speak of those things that are done in them in secret. But they can call it by name. God said David committed adultery with Bathsheba. And that's not stirring me up. And if I get stirred up by reading scripture, I better start praying something wrong. In my life, if I read the word of God and, and start getting stirred up sexually. God knows how to put down, he puts down accuracy, he puts down enough information, but there's not the gross details. Isn't that right? You know what I'm saying? And are these guys who want to deal with the accuracy of what happened? I want them to call that sin, whatever it is, by me, but I don't want the gross details. I don't want to sit there and all of a sudden be caught up with my mind fantasizing evil. And so I just won't let them go into details, you know, the, the intimate details of the really I don't care about that stuff, but what is it? And they go through it. If I'm dealing with a lady, I walk out. I, will not, I do not want to listen to a lady share. I think it's wrong for me to be there. I think it's making it hard for her. I wish we had a woman counselor. We do not. And we haven't got room for one. We'd have to move the office if we got a, a woman counselor. But I cannot and I will not stay in there and I ask them I tell them what to do I said I will leave the room and as you go back through your life I want you to be as you know as, and women are more detailed usually anyway and just to share out loud with God sometimes just talking aloud it's helpful because my mind just you know it helps me to keep me together than just thinking sometimes my thoughts can go so many different ways but just speak out and share with God and keep sharing and walking through their life to nothing more comes to this absolute nothing left 
God brings nothing more in their life. And then we go positive. We had a fellow that did that. He went through this stuff. This fellow had gone to Bible school. We have a number of Bible school students that come there in ministry anymore because of what happened in Bible school. He'd never been exposed to pornography or to prostitution. But when he moved to that major city to go to school, he saw this place, went in, began to look at the magazines and all of the things that go on in those painted up bookstores, and began to get involved with these prostitutes. And it was a horrible mess. In fact, there was someone here last night that knows this person very, very well. And in the process, it says, a man that gets involved with a prostitute will be reduced to a loaf of bread. And that was true. He lost his boat, he lost his house, he lost his job, he lost his wife, he lost everything. Another fellow only had left was his Porsche, he had us all that. The guys that had lots of money got in this involved with prostitutes and they've been reduced, as God's word says, to a loaf of bread. Just bankrupt. Physically, financially because of the moral issues. And this fellow prayed and said, I was being involved with these prostitutes and this kind of stuff. But something was wrong. I said, something is not right here. So we have a river, a beautiful riverfront where there's grass, and you can walk along the river, grass and trees. And once you go down the riverfront, I just want you to walk with the Spirit of God. There's something not right. I said, I don't feel good about what you've done. I mean, I, I, I'm thankful for what you've said here and all of that. And this fellow, who obviously was not in ministry because of his involvement with prostitutes, went down to the riverfront. And God didn't run to say, I was involved with prostitutes. As he walked up and down, God brought 350 of them to mind that he'd be involved with. This guy's in his early 30s. 350 different girls that God wanted to deceive. The terribleness of his sin and to break this man with this. And when he went deeper with this, then he came to freedom. But he didn't come to freedom until he got to grips with the ugliness and the bondage of this whole thing as a married man being God involved in that kind of relationship. So and you have to let God work. How God works, God works. And they, sometimes people don't need to go deeper, maybe because of their brokenness. I don't know. I mean, don't ask me why someone gets says, you know, I've been involved with prostitution. That's it. That's, that's, that's all there is. You know, it's interesting when um, young men get involved in pornography. You know where most young men get their first pornography or their first exposure to pornography from their fathers. And so many Christian dads are into pornography. Remember one boy told me how he went in his dad's bedroom, pulled the bottom dresser drawer out of the dresser, and there underneath the dresser on the floor between the drawer and the floor was his dad's pornography. I said, how did you know it was there? I said, I don't know. I was just in there and I had this thought of pulling the drawer back. Another boy put his hand between the mattress and the box springs and found the magazine and he went back after his folks were gone and he pulled it out and you know what it was. And he was looking at it, putting it back. A lot of fathers don't even know their kids have found their secret cache of pornography and are using it. Another boy at a pastor seminar, was a pastor, came to me and he said, you know, he said, uh, Logan, I was kneeling by my dad's bed one day and I put my hand underneath the, between the mattress and the box springs and I felt the magazine and I thought, hmm, I'm going to come back later when the dad's not in bed. And so he came back later and reached his hand under and pulled the magazine out and was holiness unto the Lord. His dad was a holiness pastor. <laughs> I know, praise God. I wish every kid that stuck his hand into the mattress got holiness magazines. You know. <laughs> so after they go through and nothing more comes, I said, now let's go back to this positively because Romans 6 has a positive sign. 
And he said, All right, choose not to let sin sit on the throne of your life, but you will obey it. Instead of yielding yourself to sin on the throne, yield yourselves to God on the throne. As those are alive to dead and the members of your body to be instruments of what? Righteousness. And if you do that, sin will not have dominion over you. It only tells them 16, yield your body to be obedient unto righteousness. Oh, I forgot to tell you. Verse 21 was the last one negatively. If a person keeps going further and further iniquity, it says, what fruit you have then in those things you are now ashamed, for the end of those things are death. The guys are there, they're ashamed. That when they let sin sit there, they had no idea what was going to lead them. They had no idea of where the, the bottom of the alley was in that whole thing. But if we will yield our body to God to be an instrument of righteousness unto God, yield our members to be servants of righteousness, as he keeps saying, then it tells us what in verse 22. But now being made free from sin and become servants of God, you have fruit unto holiness and everlasting life. And right there I ask the fellows, because usually I'm doing the fellows, the fellows, are you willing to do this? Are you willing to yield the parts of your body to God to be an instrument of righteousness? So are you willing to start up here with your mind and lay your mind on the altar and saying, God, I've used my mind for so much evil. I want to give my mind to you. Lord, you said, Job said he made a covenant with his eyes. He didn't look lustfully at a maid. Proverbs says, let your eyes look right on. Lord, I've used my eyes in a wicked way and I'm going to yield my eyes on the altar. Father, things that come out of my mouth that are so vile, I'm going to yield my mouth and my tongue to you that you'd be glorified there. I've used my ears to listen to things I should never have listened to. Lord, would you take my ears and my hearing that I might hear the things that would glorify you. Lord, you said to lift up holy hands and mine are dirty. I've used these hands to do so much evil. Lord, I want to yield my hands to you. Father, my feet have gone in wrong places. I don't want to yield my feet to you. And Lord, I know that you designed me to be a sexual person. And there's nothing wrong with that in your order, in the way you set it up. And I want to yield my sexual parts to you, that I would bring glory to you. And Lord, last of all, I want to put my sex drives on the altar, and I want you to drive them. That's in keeping with what? Romans 12. One and two, isn't that? I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your what? Bodies a living sacrifice. What did Corinthians say? Know you not that your body is what? The temple of the Holy Spirit, where you yield your body to bring glory to God. That's so vital. And the fellows will do that. And we have fellows doing that, and you should see the tears running down their cheeks. Because it's the first time they ever thought of these things being anything but dirty anything but wrong. That's what the world has told us, hasn't it? The world has told us it's all wrong, it's all dirty, it's all that. Our kids don't have a proper concept of the whole thing because our media and our schools are telling the kids a different story. A friend of mine, if you don't think we're in trouble, a friend of mine started us in the third grade. They sent a banana and a condom around each to each child in the third grade class. Well, this was the wrong father. He is an Italian football player. 
is also a Christian. Not too sanctified when you do bananas and condoms <laughs> with a daughter in third grade. He drove up to the school. He said, they heard me when I pulled into the parking lot. It wasn't his radio, it was him. And he walked in that school, and he was going to do the Samson thing. That was tear that thing apart from top to bottom. And he went in there, and I'm telling you, he just railed at those, the teacher, the principal, and anybody in authority around there, and what they were doing to his kids, and that he did not ever want anything like that ever happened again, and so on. And he put that school back 20 years in its, in its teaching of sex education. <laughs> They're not about to try. And this is horrible. Here, you're trying to protect your kids in one way, and they go, and they're taught things that this is not education, it's not school, it's terrible stuff that kids are being exposed to. And our kids need to realize that there's, there's sanctity in the way God designed marriage and the body and all of that, and it's a wonderful thing. God's way and God's time and, and God's best. And so they yield their body. Remember the medical doctor I talked to you about that, that said this doesn't apply to me as guys got up and shared how they've been set free in the medical area. And he said, oh, that doesn't apply to me and so on. And when he was there in my office and he came to this, it was, we have some interesting smiling times in counseling. And he gave his synaptic connections. He gave his adrenal glands. He gave his kidneys. He gave, I mean, God got the, uh, the medical anatomy book. <laughs> I mean, he didn't want one part left out. I mean, he just wanted to be so sure that he, I know, and I'm smiling. I said, God, I know you're laughing in heaven. You're just loving this, as this guy is saying. God, I don't want the enemy to have any part of my physical body. You know, I'm, I, want to, I want you to be glorified for what I do to this body. This is a thrilling time. It really is. For guys that are in addiction, I can't tell you. It's so thrilling. They realize what pride did to them, how pride keeps letting them be tempted and tempted in these areas, and they dealt with pride, and now they're dealing and taking back the ground there. Now they're dealing with the sexual area to take back ground there. Now we can deal with the enemy. Because as far as I know, there's no other scriptures. Oh, I forgot one. There is no one. We usually do it after bitterness. I'm sorry. I, it, the way we're breaking here, I forgot it. And that's First Timothy. Boy, if I forgot this one, we'd be in trouble. Because if you're helping somebody, they're not going to make it. Because this is a major one. First um, Timothy. Chapter 1. Do you know who was the first... You'll know now, I'll ask this question for return. Who was to be the first pastor of the church at Ephesus? Guess who? First Timothy. <laughs> Timothy was to be the pastor. And Paul knew you couldn't go into a more difficult area to pastor than the pastor of a church that, that the church building itself is one of the ten wonders of the world. With all the demons and all the immorality, poor Timothy going there to start a little storefront work there's going to be an uphill battle. You couldn't go and it's going to a real dark area. So Paul said, Timothy, if you're going to make it, and it's going to be warfare all the way there, you've got to take two things with you. If you don't, you'll shipwreck. And so he says, this charge I commit to the son Timothy, according to verse 18 to the end, it's all one long sentence, according to the prophecies which went before thee, that thou by them might war a good warfare. So here's the warfare passage. Holding faith and a good conscience, which some have put away concerning really their life of faith, have made shipwreck. 
of whom is Hymenius and Alexander, whom I delivered over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Okay? There are two things that Timothy, if you're going to make it in ministry, you've got to have genuine faith, and what's the other? A clear conscience. And he said, What some have put away concerning their life of faith have shipwrecked. And two of them are Hymenius and Alexander, and I had to release them to Satan. I had to turn them over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now, in the context, this is interesting because when my, my ghostwriter got this, being a Dallas Seminary grad, he had never heard anyone teach it like I taught it, and he wanted to be sure that when he put it in on paper, that we wouldn't be shot down. And when he looked it up, he said, Jim, I, I'm amazed. They said, I really think that what you're saying is right. And I said, that's encouraging. <laughs> because I, I really believe, after studying and praying over these passages, that this is really right. But see, they don't usually handle it this way. First of all, Hymenaeus and Alexander must have been believers. Why? Because Paul turned them over to Satan. You turn Satan's kids over to Satan, you don't have to. They're already his. It's just like that guy in Ephesus that they released to the enemy. So obviously, these fellows were probably Christians. But they may learn not to blaspheme. When you take blaspheme, the word there is blasphemo, which means to rail against. Now, what did they do? Did these guys swear? Well, does that fit the sentence? Does that fit the context? No, it doesn't fit the context. So in the context, it must have been something that they said, Paul said, was blaspheming. You know what I'm saying? We've got to look at the, the, at least the sentence. Now, if we went around this hotel and asked people out there, non-Christian people, do you think it's important to be a Christian to have faith? Do you think anyone would say no? I don't. Because you try to win people to Christ and what do they say? I haven't got enough what? I haven't got enough faith to be a Christian. I mean, somehow, faith and Christianity seem to go together and even non-Christians seem to know that that's there. I can't believe that these guys said faith is not important to being a Christian. But I can believe that they would say having a clear conscience is not important. And Paul said, that's blasphemy. I'll release you to the enemy if you teach that you can go and not make right when you've done wrong as a believer. If you're teaching that, that's blasphemy. And you look what he says, the purpose of teaching. In verse 5, the purpose of teaching, the end of the commandment, is love that comes out of a pure heart, out of a good conscience, and faith, genuine faith. Paul said, I exercise myself always. I have a conscience void of offense towards God and man. And so after you do the bitterness thing, how I introduce this section here, I usually say to the person this. I say, if someone was sitting in my office and they were making a list of people that hurt them that never made it right, would you be on their list? Would your name be on there? And I said, would you, after now they've gotten right, would you this night go home and say, Lord, are there people out there that I've heard that I've never made right. Would you bring those names to mind? I want to write them down. When I have them bring them in and we go over the offense, sometimes it is not proper to go back to that person. Because instead of making things right, it makes it what? Worse. Now, let me give you an illustration of that. 
because the purpose is we want to clear up the past. And so we want to be sure that we properly write. There was a fellow that came to us, and he had been very, very immoral, but he felt he had no responsibility to go back to the girls that were loose. He was loose, they were loose, why go back? But there were two girls that he had uh, violated them and taken their purity. And he felt he had a real responsibility to two girls. But he didn't know where they were. And he prayed and he said, God, if it's important for me to share with these girls that I'm so sorry now that I'm a Christian, I wasn't a Christian then, but I'm so sorry now for what I did and would they forgive me, would you bring them back into my life in a very supernatural way so if they, if they have a problem, I could free them of the problem. Because see, if someone is holding bitterness towards me, what does that do? That gives the enemy a right to what? Attack them, to torment them. And so when I go back to somebody and ask forgiveness, I may be freeing them of what? A torment of the enemy. See, it makes so much more sense to me. I mean, not only the gospel, but the ministry it can have. Not just so I can have a clear conscience, but I might free them of some terrible kind of stuff going on in their life because of what I did. And this fellow was in a bonanza, which was L-shaped. And he was sitting there with his wife. Now, he didn't tell his wife the details of these things, but his wife knew that, he had, that she was getting someone who had been immoral in the past. And listen, wives, let me tell you something. Don't ask for details. You'll be sorry. It'll just wipe you out. Don't do it. It'll just get you. Who was it and all this stuff? Tell me all about it, all that stuff. It'll just wipe you out. You'll have more struggles than anything. Just say, no, that it was. It's under the blood. It's in the past. Let go of it. Don't want all the details. It will not help you at all. It'll just give you more problems knowing all the details of that stuff. Well, he was sitting by the window. His wife was sitting in front of him. And in to the back side of this restaurant walks one of these girls and a fellow. And the fellow's back was to this fellow and his wife and the girl so they could see each other. And so there was a salad bar there and they'd gone to the salad bar and his wife said to this fellow who'd been there, he said, she said, Ken, uh, do, you, um, do you want to go back to the salad bar? And he said, not right yet. Well, the salad bar was this way. So when you're up at the salad bar, you couldn't see in the back of the L. Well, she got up and when she did, this fellow got up which left the guy who had violated this girl and the girl. And she got up real quick, she walked over to the table, and she said this. He doesn't know about us, don't recognize me, don't tell me anything, and went and sat down. Do you see that freedom of any response? He said, no, I'm going to tell him and tell you. That would be what? Terrible. And so you go, in some people's lives, to go back in and call, you know, I'm the fellow that violated your wife, I want to talk to her. You know, I mean, some people just don't have a whole lot of smarts on this. You see, the enemy would like to get in there, wouldn't he? Here you're trying to make things right, and what do you make things what? Worse. So I want to sit with the person to find out who are they, what was the offense, and what would be the best way to deal with it. And to be sure that it would be right before the Lord to deal with it. And if there are people on there, you don't know where they are, let's just entrust them to the Lord that if it's important for that person, because you can always get right with God, can't you? Always. But it doesn't mean that I can get right with another individual if it's going to make it very difficult for their family situation or whatever. We just need to be wise on that one. And so I usually like to have somebody clearing their conscience sit with someone else. Even in the book, we're saying, please sit with a mature Christian. What were you going to say? I get letters from people that say, you know, I've heard you speak. I've never liked you. I don't like the way you speak. Would you forgive me? <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
and I walk around and they're sloshing in my shoes. It's blood. <laughs> Mine is dripping down. I'm going, I didn't need to know that. The enemy turns around and uses that. What did I say? Was it really that bad? You know, you know what I'm saying? And just, it, it, and that's, that's not what God did. Was I aware of that? That they don't like me? No. So the circle of confession should never be bigger than a circle of events. You don't need to go to people that don't even know. They're not aware. If it's just an attitude problem on your part, you need to deal with it between you and God and go on. But if, if there's someone else, and the scripture makes it very clear, that your brother knows you have ought against him, or there's ought there and there's, there's a really known, that is, that is no doubt. You've got to go. I mean, the scripture makes it so clear. But there are a few of those fringy things. And let's be sure it's right before God. Because I'd rather you be slow in going and do the right thing than rush in and do the wrong thing. Because someone doesn't have to go back and make right in order for God to, to set them free. All it would be is willing to go back. Willing to destroy their pornography. Willing to destroy their music. Willing to get right with people. That's all they need to do and God will set them free. They don't have to fly from Sioux City back to Dallas, ask forgiveness, get on a plane, fly back so I can pray over them. Okay, so that's the clear conscience one. Now, what do we do now? This is what we're going to do with the enemy. We haven't dealt with the enemy all this whole time. As far as we know, all ground is gone. And what we use here, and it's the only time I use it unless someone doesn't know how to pray about these things. And in our book, we're not putting prayers. Because what I found is people said, oh, I prayed Neil Anderson's prayers. I said, so? Praying a written prayer does not set you free. Do you understand what I'm saying? That you pray these words in a certain order, and now you're free. And some people that, you know, I prayed the prayers, it didn't work. I'm going, that's not it. What sets you free is what? The truth. And then pray on the base of that truth. Those prayers were never designed to be an end in themselves. It was to guide you to pray truth back to God. The two prayers that he has that I like the best is the one on pride. It's just a wonderful prayer. Best prayer I've ever seen in pride. And the, and the last prayer. And the last prayer is hard. And almost, you almost have to guide someone. They've never prayed against iniquities. They've never prayed against familiar spirits that may be in that family where and familiar spirits are the spirits that give you the ability to do occultic powers it's an empowering in the family that's passed on generationally the iniquities that are passed on generationally any kind of a curse that's in the family you say well you know I don't believe in curses well good do you have any computer bible study punch curses in it put an asterisk and start reading what comes up on your screen Curses are in the Bible. God believes in them. They're true. But we want to believe, we said this before, remember? We don't want to believe in curses. We want to believe in what? Blessings. I believe in blessings. I think it's important for blessings. When our daughter got married, did I mention that? We wanted to do something very special for her. She's our first one leaving the home. So I was reading scripture. God, what we could do? What would be the right thing to do for a daughter that's getting married? And I read about Rebecca. Before she left the house, what did they do? They put a blessing on her. So our daughter, before she went to the church to get dressed, our family gathered around her, and we put a family blessing on her as she left our home. So the last thing we did as a family before she walked out of the house to become part of another family, you know, family unit, was to put a blessing on her. The last thing we did our son at the church before he married Diana was to put a blessing on him and his brothers and sisters I mean his sisters that are married and brother-in-laws gathered around and we pray God's blessing on them well that, that's biblical 
Look at the blessings of God in Scripture, but you can't separate. If you want, and if you want heaven, you've got to take what? Hell. If you want blessings, you've got to take cursings, because God teaches both. They're right there. And I need to understand something. That curses on a family and the far-reaching effect of curses. It's all through Scripture. We're not to curse our kids. Yeah, we're to bless, curse not. What's he talking here? <clears throat> anyway, and we need to pray against that. Anything that's come on my family, I just stand against that. So you're standing against iniquities. You're standing against curses. You're standing against any kind of enabling, spiritual enabling, familiar spirits, which we had in our family, uh, empowering strange uh, supernatural empowerings in our family. Uh, we don't have time to go in there. need to be prayed against. And then command anything that's in or around me to leave me, and I like to say this, to go where Jesus Christ sends it. So there's a, real, there's a real argument here. Can Christians send demons to the pit? I don't know. I don't see them. You know, Fred Dickinson said, you know, Jesus sent the demons into the pigs. And he said that was a pig stop before the pit stop. <laughs> so, you know, but I do know this. I command them to go where Jesus sends them. Wherever that is, is good enough for me. And that's, I have to pray how I feel comfortable. You know, in my heart, I, I just can't pray words. I have to pray that I can breathe in my heart. Lord, I don't know where you send them, but just send them away. Just remove them from here. First, I have the person pray, and then I say, I'm just going to agree with you. And I pray, and I say, Lord, we've taken back all ground as best as we know how. And we've asked your Spirit to guide us this week, and we've asked all ground to be removed. And on the basis of that, first of all, I want to command anything associated with the mind of this person, where their mind's been under attack, to leave and to go when you send it. Lord, this person's been just annihilated in their emotions. I just command anything that's been focusing on the emotional life of this individual to leave them and to go when you send it. Lord, there have been others that are seeking to influence their behavior and choices. And I want to stand against those, and I stand with them. We command those to leave this person. If there are any religious spirits, they are the worst. The very first person I ever dealt with, because I didn't remember I didn't believe in this stuff, was a missionary that had religious spirits. Those are the people that are super sickening. Did you ever put two packets of sweetener in a small cup of coffee? You want to spit it out? That's what those people are like. They're so godly. They're so wonderful, you have to check to see if they're walking on the floor. Do you know what I'm saying? You've been around those? There's, just, there's something. And they're getting these messages from God, and they're so wonderful. Oh, this lady was creepy. And I knew this lady. I heard these, this, this, she had these religious spirits. And we were praying for her, nothing happened. Guess what they were named? One was called Jesus Christ. One was called the Holy Spirit. And one was called God the Father. And as they began to speak to her and she heard these voices, she began to do what they'd say. they tell her to go, let's say you're in Dallas here. And all of a sudden this voice says, go out to the airport. There's a flight coming from Hawaii on TWA flight so-and-so and pass out tracks. There's someone there that wants Christ. You drive to the airport. Does that sound wicked and evil and demonic? And she'd go to the airport and there would be TWA flights just like it was said, waiting there, but no one would talk to her. Let's pass some tracks out and leave. She kept getting more and more and more under those voices. And more and more strange things began to happen. So when we would pray, and I didn't know what to do, I thought, maybe you give the sign of the cross and they leave. I didn't know. You know, I wasn't of that persuasion. I'm not that flavor. I'm vanilla. You know, I'm not that kind. And so I'm praying and nothing's happening. But guess what happened? I would pray in the name of Jesus, I command you to leave. And she'd say, 
Why is he trying to pray the Holy Spirit out of me? Don't go. So we didn't know what was going on. There was all this confusion. So I didn't know what to do. I was flying to Toronto. We flew to, 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 to uh, Chicago to meet with Fred Dickinson, the charismatic hiding at Moody behind all the Moody stuff there. I mean, he's not, but that's what I thought. You know, somehow Moody's got this, this wild charismatic that's casting demons out, but I'd rather send her a wild charismatic. I didn't know what to do. So I sent her to Fred Dickinson as anything, but if you know Fred, he's, he's, that's not his persuasion either. But he deals with demons. He couldn't help her. He put her in a mental hospital. And she's in a straitjacket. So here is this missionary in a straitjacket at a mental hospital. She's traveled all over the world. She's known in, she has held seminars in almost every country of the world. People all over the world call her mother. And here she is in a straitjacket in a mental hospital, out of it totally. Just out of it. These voices are talking. She is just, it's awful. And so I'm going up to Toronto. She's going to a mental hospital. And I said, I'll fly back to Chicago. I have to change plane for her, and I will call. And uh, if she's still bad, pick me up, drive me to the mental hospital, and I'll fly out of Chicago on another flight. So I fly into Chicago, and I call, and I said, where is she? And they said, she's gone. I said, she escaped? <laughs> you know, I mean, I've got a lot of faith. <laughs> she escaped from this mental hospital. They said, no, we let her go. She's okay. I said, she hasn't even been there a week. And they hadn't even decided what was wrong with her. They didn't know what to call her. Was she, you know, schizophrenic and, you know, manic? And, you know, they hadn't put the tag on her yet, so they didn't know what color pill to give her. So how could they let her go? <laughs> you gotta, you know, you got to put them in a box. Well, I hadn't got her in a box yet, and, and she's gone. But this is what happened to her. Here she is in this mental hospital, and they unloosen one arm, and they said so she could feed herself. She's on the second floor, and the Holy Spirit says to her, did you get it, Cameron? Holy Spirit, quote-unquote, said to her, shut that lady down and run out of here. And she said, this can't be of God. And it was broken. See, so all these people are praying. There are all kinds of people praying for her. But as long as she was deceived, she wasn't free. But as soon as she saw there were some things she had to deal with that got her in that situation. But she was free enough that the hospital couldn't imagine why they had her in a straitjacket. She just came right out of it. And she's serving the Lord today, and she's doing well. And I've asked her forgiveness. I said, here I am, taught counselors in Bible college. You know, I claim to be a man of scripture, and I didn't even know how to deal with a simple demonic problem. And you had to go to a mental hospital. And I told the president, when, when I found her, I said, I will leave this mission if I do not know how to deal with someone with a simple problem with the enemy. No one in this mission should have to go through that. I don't understand what's here, but I know it was the enemy, and I know she's a believer. And somehow I've got to put it all together. I've got to study. And I got, you know, went to back to my book from Dallas and began to go through all the books that I had on warfare and study the scripture. And I was shocked by all the verses. How did I miss them? How did I skip them? 